Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Spiceton Podcast. My name is Jacob and I'm your host. This week we'll be talking again about The Mandalorian. I didn't expect to, basically, we're going to be doing a very similar show to what we did last week, but with a lot more information. I hope that's going to be very exciting. But before we do that, just some quick news. There's not a whole lot in the, you know, Star Wars world going on. We did have the uh, Empire Strikes Back 40th anniversary last Thursday on the 21st, 20th, 21st. Whatever that Thursday was, uh, so obviously that was a exciting time. I uh, my girlfriend and I watched the movie on Disney Plus. Good, you know, a nice way to spend an evening, and uh, yeah, overall pretty good. Some personal news: we uh, we launched a YouTube channel last week, so that was exciting. I have a, kind of a general schedule right now. I'm doing Galaxy of Heroes videos on Wednesdays and Fallen Order videos on Fridays. So it's not a whole lot, it's just a little something extra, uh, you get the visual content there as well, and uh, it's you know it's not super frequent, these are longer videos, like 20-ish minutes uh, for the first week each video, um, but it, you know, it allows me to record these at a, a little less frantic pace, I'm not putting out two or three a week, uh, so you know, life gets in the way sometimes, uh, this is a clip I think I'm pretty comfortable keeping up with. Especially with Fallen Order, where I can just bank those. Like, I recorded two within the first couple days, just so, like, you know, you never know when life's going to get in the way. So, yeah, bank those. Galaxy Heroes, that's more timely. I'm trying to at least do those as close to Wednesdays as I possibly can to give you a real, you know, real in-time update on what that account looks like. Uh, So, it's following an alt I started with a kind of experimental farming setup. So, if you think that's interesting, uh, go check that out. Yeah, you can all find it on the YouTube channel. Uh, it's the channels, you know, it's the Spice Den, not too hard. Actually, it wasn't too hard for me to find just searching on the YouTube search engine, go to channel, go to Spice Den. It usually comes up pretty quickly. Uh, you can also find it on my Twitter at Spice Den Pod. Uh, it's, I have it in my Instagram, but Instagram doesn't let you do direct links outside of the platform uh, on such a small account like mine. There are links in there, but you'd have to copy and paste them into a browser. But, you know, you can find it in both places, both accounts at Spice Den Pod the YouTube channel, The Spice Den, so pretty easy to find, I hope, but yeah, uh, if you want to see that kind of stuff, go out, and you can go over and check that out, I'm maybe eventually going to upload all of the audio podcasts onto YouTube, with like, just like a static background, I'm not gonna start doing video podcasts, or I don't plan on it ever, uh, but you can, you know, maybe, it'll be quite a, you know, undertaking, but I might eventually get around to putting the backlog up on YouTube, but anyways, that's without out of the way. We're gonna hop into the first of our two main segments. We're talking more Mandalorian casting, and we're also talking, of course, the latest episode of the Gallery. So last week I talked about Timothy Oliphant. He was casted as a mysterious character, nothing really known about him. And within like a day or two of the episode coming out, we got more news on what he's gonna be. So we found out that apparently it, rumors are he's going to be taking on Boba Fett's armor, and obviously it makes no sense for him to play Boba Fett since. We have Tamara Morrison in the show. Uh, I'm not certain that Tamara will play Boba Fett, but I'll, we'll get there. So, the without him being Boba Fett, that only leaves one logical character for him to play, and that's Cobb Vanth. So, I've definitely talked about him before, but we're just going to take this episode, do a full dive into who he is, and you know what what he's about. So, Cobb Vanth appeared in like little vignette side chapters in the Aftermath trilogy of novels. 
This was one of the fir- the first aftermath book was one of the first books published in the new canon and came around right around the same time as episode seven. So the books tell the story of the fall of the Empire after the Battle of Endor through the eyes of a ragtag group of heroes, including Snap Wexley, who's one of Poe's closest friends. Uh, and timeline-wise, this you know it's right after the Battle of Endor. At least it starts there, and it's gonna end a few years before season one. I think maybe I don't know three three years, maybe two to three somewhere in that range. But anyways, so in these books, Vanth is a former slave on Tatooine. Uh, he has a giant scar on his back. It's sort of like a mark of his servitude. But he eventually freed himself and became the self-appointed sheriff of Freetown. It's very, like, definitely heavy Western-inspired vibe, which fits in very well with the Mandalorian, obviously. Uh, but sometime after the death of Jabba, Vanth runs into a man named Adwin Charu. Uh, Adwin worked for the Red Key Mining Company, which was just a front for the Red Key Raiders Crime Syndicate. Charu got a hold of a chest of Mandalorian armor from some Java scavengers and was going to give it to his crime lord boss, Lorgan Movellan. Mo- uh, Vanth offered to help broker the deal for the armor since he knew that Adwin was an off-worlder. Uh, however, once they got there, Vanth demanded the armor for use as his job as a lawman. Adwin pulled a blaster on him, but Van- Vanth reverses it and shoots him right through the shoulder. And he gives him a warning, telling him that he would bring law to Tatooine and wouldn't tolerate criminals like the Red Key Syndicate. And he allows Adwin to return on his way to send a message to his boss. After this, Vanth establishes himself as the leader of Freetown, uh, which was once Moss Pelgo. Uh, at some point, the Red Key try to sneak in a baby hut uh, into the palace dais on Freetown to overthrow him. Huts are, you know, symbolically very huge in this area of the Outer Rim. Uh, and even though it would be a baby, it would definitely command some respect. Vanth and his friends overthrow this plot and uh, capture the hutlet. Shortly after this, they go and uh, they rescue J- uh, Jabba's Beastmaster, Malakili, from some Red Key raiders. So Malakili, it's like that he's like a turban-wearing kind of looking guy with some robes. You see him in Return of the Jedi. He's like the one that cries when the Rancor dies, but he's still at this point still rot over the death of the Rancor. Uh, he feels like he's failed, uh, but Vanth uh, convinces him to come back to Freetown and join him. In exchange for training some unruly Rontos around the uh, the area, they give him a homestead for him to live on, and they also enlist his help in training the baby Hutlet. Not like a pet. Huts are sentient, so he treats it like, you know, like a real person. Uh, But with Malakili's help, they also were able to broker a peace deal with the Tuscans in the area. Uh, They gave the Tuscans water and a pearl from the belly of a crate dragon, which is like a big, lore-heavy creature from the old canon. But they were able to give them that in exchange for protection. Uh, And, you know, it kind of harkens back to Mando bargaining with the Tuscans in Season 1 of uh, the show. Before that, we never saw anything that humanized these characters. They were just savages. But you're also seeing that through the the lens of Anakin and through Luke, who didn't really know them as anything but. So this is like these are the two real instances of humanizing Tusken Raiders. So I think that's kind of a cool parallel. And we'll see if that plays into uh, him coming into the show. But then eventually, the Red Key Syndicate overwhelms Freetown and capture Vanth. Uh, they bring him before the leader, who was supposed to get the armor uh, originally, and they taunted him for his failure and said they'd sell the hutlet, uh, who is now named Borgo, back to the huts. Uh, they go to beat Malakili as a show of strength, and that 
causes Borgo to let out a blood-curdling scream that brings the Tuscans in to help save the day. With the tables turned, the leader Lorgan tells Vanth that they would be back to end him, but Vanth was unfazed by this threat. He uh, is dedicated to freeing Tatooine and he carved a message into Lorgan's face to send him back on his way to his bosses. So very, kind of like a very Inglorious Bastards kind of vibe to that. This is a very exciting turn of events if this happens to uh, pan out. You know, this is, it's been a big complaint that uh, for a lot of the book readers and the comic book readers, that a lot of the content that's brought up in the print mediums gets ignored and untouched in uh, the movies and TV shows. You know, Clone Wars, I think, is a little different scenario. And same with uh, Rebels. But, you know, the mainstream, the thing that the your, your more casual Star Wars fans going to watch, they just don't care about what happens to the books. Like, a huge example of this, I would say, uh, is the book Resistance Reborn. It was the novel, the lead-in novel to Rise of Skywalker. And a lot of people complained about the fact that they didn't really set up much in the book that was used in the novel. Like, one of the things that, like, weirded me out the most was... They steal, like, the end, the very end of the novel, like, no major spoilers, but they steal a Corellian blockade runner. I'm like, oh, cool, that's, that's neat, and then when I saw Rise of the Skywalker, I'm like, whoa, they have a Corellian blockade runner, that must be the one they stole from, uh, from their mission. But no, apparently, upon reading the novelization, which I still need to finish, uh, that blockade runner on, uh, on the planet where they have their base is Tantive Four. like, I guess that's, you know, it's cool, symbolic, we're, you know, we're bringing something back from A New Hope. But, like, they just stole the same exact looking ship, like, uh, within the past couple months or years or whatever. Why would you not use that? It was a big, it was a big plot point. That was a big asset to the Resistance. They're like, oh, wait, no, we just have Tantive Four too, though, so it's fine. Like, that kind of stuff. This is the first real acknowledgement we would get of, a, like, a, something created or, or, you know, that's from the books. So that'd be huge, I think. Uh, and, you know, it's easy. I don't, like, his backstory isn't going to be too com- complicated, so... It doesn't, you know, it's not like everyone that hasn't read the books is going to be left out. You can introduce this character in an, you know, authentic way that doesn't uh, preclude or seclude others that aren't as informed. So I think that's good. I think this is a nice place to start, and hopefully we see more of this in the future. Um, But, you know, there have been hints at this before. At the end of the Gunslinger episode, uh, we had the body of Fennec Shand and the boots coming up. You know, that's probably, at this point, we think it could be Cobb Vanth. So, everyone at the time thought it was Boba Fett. Every single th- I'd go on to Reddit, every single thread would be like, it's not Boba Fett. Looking like Cobb Vanth exists. There's no way that they'd just, like, completely ignore that. At least I, would, I hoped. So, and uh, maybe I got some validation now. So, I'm excited. Definitely going to be a cool character, I think, to see in there. Here's, like, here's my pitch for, like, my... I, like, was talking with some friends in Discord, uh, on the Galaxy of Beerus Discord... And they're like, we're talking about this. Here's my like crazy off the wall pitch for what happens. So you have Cobb Vanth introduced. You have Tamur Morrison introduces playing Captain Rex. You fit in with like the whole deal, whole Ahsoka, Bo-Katan stuff. Makes sense. And everyone forgets about the rumors of, you know, when we see all this, everyone forgets about the rumors of him potentially playing Boba Fett. They're like, okay, the armor's there. Boba Fett's obviously not there. Tamur Morrison not playing Boba Fett, he's playing Captain Rex, that's what he was actually for, therefore maybe this Boba Fett rumor was a whole, like, red herring or false report or whatever. And then, like, the last episode of the penultimate episode, Boba Fett returns, he somehow made it out of the Sarlacc, was separated from his armor, and, uh, kills Cobb Vanth, takes it back, and, uh, you know, asserts himself and becomes, you know, either 
a villain, uh, you know, a villain of season three, or I don't know, or, you know, we have not an outright villain, but a, just a weird back and forth uh, dynamic, like two sides of a different coin for the Mandalorian and Boba Fett, where one's more ruthless and one, although, you know, Din Djarin started out ruthless, he is reformed and has, you know, an evolution of character, and you can play with that dynamic. I think something like that would be really cool. And definitely, you know, turn the heads of everyone that might not see it coming. That's like way out there. I don't think it's actually going to happen, but it'd be pretty cool. With that said, I think that's all we have for, you know, discussing Kyle Panther. If you have any questions about this, you know, feel free to reach out. Like hit me up on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. My DMs are open. Like you can just, there's a lot of cool stuff going on right now. And I, I don't profess to be an expert, but I definitely know more than your average person. Uh, so if you like have any questions or you just want to have a conversation on what your thoughts are on all this, uh, please let me know and I'll definitely get back to you. I got no much, don't much better to do. So yeah. Uh, but next we're going to touch on the episode four of the gallery. It's all about technology and, uh, their, their unique filming setup. So we're, we're starting off with John Favreau talking about how the journey to the setup of the Mandalorian started with the jungle book and, um, their their stuff they did there they you know one of the things they were trying to solve for was interactive light so not just have you know you have like if characters walking through the jungle you'd have shadows and light coming from all the sources around them and then it's not just like flat lit like you'd see in like a poor like a poor cgi example a poor green screen movie you like you have shadows coming from the leaves and light reflecting off of like animals running by so they did blue screen but then they also had uh set elements like leaves and foliage that could cast shadows, and then they have these giant video boards, like the example they show where they had like a stampede of animals running around it, and the animals, the, like these video boards basically just cast the light of the animals. It wasn't like, oh look, the video board is the warthog, it's like the silhouette of a warthog, and that casts light off, and, and interacted with Mowgli, so you have that, that better meld of CG and, you know, real life. So they said it worked great and like everything looked good, but the way they had it set up was just so incredibly time consuming just because if they, you know, they were taking a shot and they realized they wanted to do something a little differently, they have to rework the entire set. Uh, so then they, you know, took this and learned when then they did the Lion King movie where everything was pre-animated in like a video game engine and then they filmed it, quote unquote, filmed it with consumer VR tech. So you know, they, they have this three-dimensional scene and someone hops in a VR headset and, like, they kind of track their head where they want the camera to go and that's rendered out through that vantage point. And it honestly really reminded me, it's been a while, it's going to be kind of a deep cut, uh, but I used to be a pretty big fan when the movie came out of James Cameron's Avatar. And, you know, the story, like, I, I, I will stand by that it's not a bad movie. I think it gets a lot more hate on the internet than it deserves. Uh, but, you know, I was really interested in it just because of the technological leaps that this movie took. And I remember watching the behind the scenes on the, uh, like, on the uh, collector's edition DVD or whatever I had. And they had a very similar setup where they'd basically render this world. Uh, they were working with Weta, uh, Weta Digital in uh, New Zealand, but they'd render this world in three dimensions and then you know they'd have a camera set up that you know they'd go ahead basically yeah again quote-unquote film it uh in environment it's like just super interesting like again please watch the video if you have, watch you know the gallery if you have the chance uh as it is you know it's super interesting and like they're 30 minutes but they fly by but anyways so they did this with lion king and then 
the last step, because, well, Lion King was all CG, so you don't really have to worry about, you know, physical environments as much. But the, the, this all came together uh, with The Mandalorian, which is the first production to use real-time rendering in a full video wall. So what they did is they built a enclosure called the Volume. And there's a 75-foot diameter circle of LED screens, so it's like a complete circle of screens, and it had a, you know, screened ceilings as well. So these screens would have the environment around them. So, you know, if, I, if Mando was sitting out in the desert, in most cases he wasn't in the desert. He was in a desert set built in this volume. And it was incredibly interesting what they do. They go out and, like, take scans and photos of real environments, and then they would be stitched together in a 3D mesh and put into the volume. So you're seeing real areas. And... You know, they have cameras in, some, you know, they're filming, they have a camera basically set somewhere in the volume, and since the cameras had positional data, they could have parallax, so, like, a, a really easy way, I would say, of explaining this is if I'm, like, looking perpendicular at, like, a tree line, like, I'm standing off in a field and there's a bunch of woods off in the distance, if I shift left to right, the you can see the, the relationship of the trees shift, you're looking at a different image or a different vantage point. So the relationship left to right of the trees are changing as your angle of viewing is changing. But if I just look at a static image of a tr you know of the same, like I take a picture and I shift my head in relationship to the picture, the trees look the same. You know, they're, they're, the left to right orientation of all the trees is always the same because it's a static image. And this is what happens with green screen if it's done, you know, poorly. If I just threw a green screen behind me and, you know, put an image of, you know, yeah, whatever, and then shift my webcam, the, this, the image is always the same. So that's the advantage of having this, you know, these large scans of areas, these three-dimensional renderings of areas, and the camera positional data. So you have that parallax and you have that more realism to the shots. And it, to add the realism, anything, you know, they had the, the screens around the outside, but anything within within the 75-foot diameter and anything on the ground had to be real. So you'd have, like, a rock or a fake rock uh, on the ground that Amanda would sit on, but then around him was the desert on the screens. So, and then you'd have, like, it, they were talking about how it became hard to differentiate what was real, like, where the screen began or where the screen ended and the real things began just because it was so seamless. This gave a ton of advantages to the filming process. You got the dynamic lighting that we were talking about earlier, and this really helped especially with reflections because, you know, Mando is basically a walking mirror, and you'd have the videos on the video wall reflecting on his helmet. You also got the instant feedback of filming, whereas, like, if I was doing a green screen movie, you know, you film in front of the screen... Maybe it comes back and, you know, it comes back way later. You don't know what's going to look like until the very end. Whereas with, you know, this type of thing, they were saying they could, you know, you're all, you already know what it's going to look like more or less. And they would be able to go back to the cutting room that day or the next day and see what was going to, what it was going to look like exactly. I think that was incredible. And like, yeah, they would be able to pick up reshoots, you know, within the week. Um, you also had the ability of the actors to respond to the physical environment, uh, where, you know, if they're supposed to be reacting to, like, uh, Juan Carlos Esposito was saying, like, oh, I looked at the sun and I knew exactly where the sun was, rather than looking, uh, I don't know, like 40 degrees up on the green screen and saying, that's the sun, sure, whatever. And they can also, 
uh, act. You know, it's really cool that the actors is something I think it was um, Carl Weathers said that I never really thought about is, you know, you have if you have a group of actors acting to a green screen, they all have different interpretations of what they think the final product is going to look like. And they were talking about the the uh, lava tunnel scene. But now in this new environment, in this new reality, they all know exactly what it's going to look like. So they're all reacting uh, to the same image rather than their perception of what an image will be. I thought that was really cool as well. So they call back to George Lucas a little bit. And he had a conversation once where he said, everything that we do in Star Wars or in filmmaking, eventually there's going to be the technology to do this in a garage and have it look exactly the same. And that's, that. you know, this was, they pitched it as the realization of that that vision that they have this set and everything can look perfect in it. And you don't, like, that's all you need. And he had wanted to do this in the past, Luke said, is, and create this sort of environment on Skywalker Ranch, but I think it was just too ahead of his time at the point. But, you know, and then Favreau talks about at the very end how nothing they create is proprietary. Everyone can do this. All this technology already exists. It's just they were the first to put it together. Uh, so hopefully this is a thing that's going to be used going forward. And I think it's it's an interesting proposition. I'm also, you know, I'm excited to see what happens with it. Like, uh, like if you watch Mandalorian, you like, obviously it was all done incredibly well. Everything looked amazing, you know. The environments were amazing, although there's a lot of desert, but it all worked so seamlessly. But I'm afraid if, you know, I, I'm excited, to, but uh, hesitant about this with the future of filmmaking. Like, think about, like, the beginning of, like, really the widespread use of CG where directors could use it, but they maybe shouldn't have. Um, and they just weren't prepared for the limitations of, you know, how it would look and how they need to shoot to make it look the best. So, you know, are we going to see the wide-scale abuse of this? Um, I don't know. Like, are we, yeah, we going to see a lot of bad utilization of this technology? I mean, hopefully not. I hope it goes well, and I hope we don't lose that authentici- authenticity uh, because of this. But I think it's an interesting leap in technology, and it's definitely a, an episode I'm glad we had as far as the series goes. I definitely still want to see, like, one, you know, it was cool to see the digital technology. I definitely want to see one focused on the practical effects as well. And I, you know, I think, I think we'll get that. It's just a matter of time. But anyways, that's all I had for this week. Um, if you liked what I had to say, check me out at Spiced and Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, again, you can check out my new YouTube channel. We'll be hopefully doing stuff Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, but that's about all I got. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Graham Bull for our music. And as always, may the force be with you. Mm-hmm.